Well, brothers and sisters in Christ, we have finally arrived at the final chapter of this letter, Paul's first letter to the Corinthians. Chapter 16 is somewhat anticlimactic, really, especially after that great resurrection chapter, chapter 15, where the importance of that most pivotal event in history is made known to us, the resurrection of Jesus Christ, and how his resurrection from the grave has become our living hope that there will be a future resurrection when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. You can't get any higher in Christian hope than chapter 15. And so here we come now to a passage that wraps everything up and it does seem anticlimactic in nature. It is certainly anticlimactic in one sense, not just to chapter 15, but to the whole of the letter. In 1 Corinthians, Paul has tackled some pretty gargantuan issues like division and immorality in the church. We've looked at that. Paul speaks in this letter in a very forthright way to the tendency of the Corinthian believers to to drift back into their old pagan way of life and to actually participate in idolatry and in so doing, open themselves up to demonic powers. He writes in this letter about the gifts of the Holy Spirit given to to build up the church of Jesus Christ, but how the Corinthians had misused these special precious gifts for self-edification reasons so that their use of the gifts was devoid of love, which seeks the best of others. And the Apostle Paul elaborates further on the, of, of this love when he refers to the three things that remain, faith, hope, and love, but the greatest of these is love. And so here, after all of what Paul has written, we come to chapter 16, and it, it kind of reads like a a postscript, a a PS at the end. And so it almost seems as though Paul tries to cram in all of these disjointed thoughts that he didn't have time to put into the body of his letter. At least that's how it seems. But these so-called disjointed thoughts of the Apostle Paul actually give to us an incredible picture a picture of what Christian community is all about, and a picture of what the core values of the church ought to be as it relates to the building of the community of God, things that should characterize us, our involvement in terms of our church community life. And what are these things? Now, there are four of them that I have picked out in this passage, four core values that in some way are discernible to us, four areas in which we all need to be involved. And the first one that I see begins at verse one, but carries through to verse nine, but we'll focus on verse one for just a moment, because Paul says, now about the collection for God's people, about the collection for God's people, do what I told the Galatian churches to do. On the first day of every week, he says, On the first day of every week, each one of you should set aside a sum of money in keeping with his income, saving it up so when I come, no collection will have to be made. Then when I arrive, I will give letters of introduction 
to the men you approve and send them with your gift to Jerusalem. If it seems advisable for me to go also, they will accompany me. He talks about money. Money. He's talking about the priority of building our community as believers. And the first thing the Apostle Paul focuses in is on the offering, on the collection that is taken. Now, I want you to keep in mind, go back to chapter 15, verse 58, because this is Paul's great conclusion statement that he makes at the end of this chapter on resurrection. Therefore, my dear brothers, stand firm, let nothing move you. Always give yourselves fully to the work of the Lord, because you know that your labor in the Lord is not in vain. And we concluded with that verse last Sunday morning, and I did not exhort you to the degree that I think we all need to be exhorted on in terms of this verse of us fully giving ourselves to the work of the Lord. But that's what Paul elaborates on now. When he, when he starts to talk about these core values in chapter 16, he's basically giving to us the various components of the work of the Lord that we need to be involved in. It's, it's, it's a priority for the Apostle Paul. Look down at verse 8, but I will stay on at Ephesus until Pentecost, verse 9, because a great door for effective work, he's talking about the work of the Lord, has opened to me and there are many who oppose me. Verse 10, if Timothy comes, see to it that he has nothing to fear while he is with you, for he is carrying on the work of the Lord just as I am. Go down to verse 15, he talks about the household of Stephanus and and they devoted themselves to the service, the, the work, the service of the saints. He adds, I urge you brothers, verse 16, to submit to such as these and to everyone who joins in the work and labors for it. So here, the Apostle Paul is speaking about the work of the Lord, the the, the well-being of the church in in, in the carrying on of the church's mission. And here he focuses in on building our community. And the first thing he talks about in verse 1 is financial giving. Now the context, according to verse 3, is that this money was going to be sent to the to the people of God who were in Jerusalem. So so this this money's gonna make a long trip accompanied, of course, with those who will bring it. And Paul talks about the churches of Galatia doing this. And the Corinthian churches were doing it as, as well because the historical context was that the churches in Judea and Jerusalem had, had suffered a severe famine and they were left financially, resourcefully destitute. And so Paul wants to build this larger community of believers by encouraging believers in other parts of the world to contribute financially to help God's people who lived for the Corinthians in a distant place. Now in the, in the context, this historical context in which this exhortation is given, we actually can draw out a number, a number of simple instructions or simple principles that apply to our use of the resources that God has given to us. And I think Paul makes it clear here that we are to share our financial resources consistently. He says, on the first day, of every week, that is the Lord's day, that is the first day of the week, that is Sunday. Each of you should set aside a sum of money. Now why, why would Paul encourage the Corinthian believers to be consistent in this? 
And the reason, friends, is because it is, it is not natural for us to be consistent in sharing our resources with others. We tend to react a little, a little bit when a need is made known and we feel obligated to, to contribute toward that need. It's not natural for us to do this, but doing it consistently on the first day of the week actually builds a habit into our lives. It makes natural what is unnatural for us. A week ago, I met with a young man who, who came to know the Lord here several months back, and we were just sitting down at Tim's, and we were sharing and reading from God's Word together, and we got on to this whole topic of giving, and as we talked with each other, it became clear, clear to him that while he has a desire to give, he's not been consistent in giving. And I directed him here to this passage on the first day of the week. Do this consistently. Build that discipline into your life. And Paul says it should also be something that we do proportionately. He says each one should set aside, verse two, a sum of money in keeping with his income to share proportionately. In other words, the more you gain, is the more that you give. You're not just giving to God the leftovers at the end of a week. You're giving to God on the first day of the week as a reminder to you that as you go into a week of labor and earning money, you're making God a priority in contributing your gift. And, and that's what he calls it in verse three. He says, send them with your gift to Jerusalem. The word there is charis, like the gifts of the Holy Spirit, the grace gifts that God gives us. We, we graciously give. We, in other words, we're to give, we're to give freely. Now, I would love to take you into 2 Corinthians, but that would require I be here for another six, well, probably another six years. <laughs> but in 2 Corinthians, the Apostle Paul refers back to this gift, and he doesn't call it a gift anymore. He calls their giving a fellowship, that's the word he uses. That in the giving of their gift, they're fellowshipping, communing, relating with the people to whom the gift is given. You see, it's the building of community. Jesus said, where your, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. And that's a revolutionary thing that Jesus said. He makes it very, very clear. If you have a struggle with giving, if you have a struggle with loosening, as it were, your wallet and giving to need and supporting the work of God, the problem is your heart. The problem is, is that your, your heart isn't in tune with what you treasure. You're supposed to treasure God, to treasure his work. And if you do, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. In other words, when you give financially to meet the need, your heart is going to go with it. But most of us think in a different way. We think our heart has to be there before we give. But our hearts are wicked. Our hearts are stubborn. Our hearts are self-seeking. So when we out of discipline, give and pour our treasure into a certain thing, then our hearts have the ability to catch up to where our treasure is. Where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Friends, there is really no community among believers without this exercise of giving because giving puts our hearts into the church. 
But Paul doesn't talk about building community just through financial giving. He talks about sharing our lives in friendship. Look at what he says beginning of verse 5. After I go through Macedonia, I will come to you. For I will be going through Macedonia. He says, perhaps I will stay with you a while or even spend a winter. See what Paul's saying? He's starting to say, I don't want to be with you for just a short period of time. I want to be with you for an extended period of time. Perhaps I will stay with you a while or even spend the winter so that you can help me on my journey wherever I go. Verse 7, I do not want to see you now and make only a passing visit. I hope to spend some time with you. In other words, Paul wanted, wanted more than their financial gift. He wanted them. He wanted fellowship with them. He wanted to be with them. He wanted to share his life together with them. And this sharing of our lives with each other, in this passage, it's clear that it extends beyond or extends across those those social lines or those social divides that are, that are so prevalent in every, every culture. I mean, consider verse three again. The gift is going to Jerusalem. Now, he's, he talks about Galatia, and he says directly to the Corinthians, your gift is gonna go for Jews who are followers of Jesus who are in Jerusalem. But the Corinthian believers were largely Greek speakers. They were Gentiles, and the Galatians were too. And so here we have now the crossing of those social lines, the crossing of racial lines. Gentiles now giving generously to support Jews who were in need. Look at at verse, verse 10 and 11. He mentions Timothy here. If Timothy comes, see to it that he has nothing to fear while he is with you. No, why would Timothy have something to fear when he's with the Corinthians? Why would Paul say that? For he is carrying on the work of the Lord just as I am. He's com- Paul's comparing himself to Timothy, Timothy to him. Verse 11, no one then should refuse to accept him. I think another translation says no one should despise him. Send him on his way in peace. Why would Paul say that? Why would Paul say, don't refuse, like, don't refuse to accept him? Don't despise him. Is it possible that there, 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 there existed in the hearts of some believers in Corinth a, an attitude toward the outsider? That Timothy, we know his, his mother was a Jew, but his father was a Greek. Was it possible that in the church, this despising of him, this refusing to accept him, would be because he's like, he's like the half-breed. And we can't fellowship with them. You see, you see the church is to, is, is to destroy these barriers. And we read in Ephesians that, that Christ, through his cross, has not only reconciled us to God, but he's reconciled a divided humanity to each other. That Jesus Christ has has broken down the dividing wall between Jew and Gentile. And we, over time, have constructed all kinds of, of social and racial and cultural dividing lines. Economically, racially, socially. And the scripture makes it clear that Christ 
brings those walls down, brings them down. And so our friendships, our love for one another, our communion with each other is to, is to cross all of these, these, these dividing lines in the establishing of true friendships with each other. And I think this is the great challenge that will face West Highland in the coming days. As more and more we see the diversity of our city, the increasing diversity of our city. And I would say to you today as a church that verse nine is true of us as it was true of the Apostle Paul. He said he would stay in, at, at Ephesus until Pentecost. Why verse nine? Because a great door for effective work has opened to me. A great door for effective work has opened to me. And the challenges that we will face in the coming days should be seen as opportunities, as open doors to build our Christian community even broader than it is now. And so to prioritize building community among believers, we need to share our resources. We need to do this consistently and proportionately, deliberately, systematically. We need a plan in giving and we need to follow that plan until it becomes second nature for us. And then we need to share our lives with each other to get to know people who are different from ourselves, to break out of our own groups as it were, and to establish community groups that, that reflect the, 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 the incredible diversity of the kingdom of God. This, I think, is the first core val value that Paul underscores. And the second, third, and fourth ones are found in verses 13 through 14. We're right in the middle of this, the end of his letter where he's getting personal. He has these like, he shoots these bullet points of things that are needed. Verse 13, be on your guard or be watchful. Stand firm in the faith. Be men of courage, be strong. Verse 14, do everything in love. So if the first thing is to prioritize the building of community among ourselves, the second thing is that we must stand firm in the gospel as our core confession. These first two ad admonitions in verse thir 13, Paul links them together. Be on your guard, be watchful, stand firm in the faith. Be watchful, be on guard, stand firm. Now each word is carefully chosen. And be on your guard or be watchful is restated in the second admonition. Stand firm in the faith. And notice it's the faith. Paul's not saying that you and I should stand firm in our faith. We should, of course, but that's not what he's saying here. He's not talking about your personal faith in Jesus, your personal trust in Jesus. He is talking about the faith. He's talking about the Christian faith. He's talking about this body of truth that we believe in, the doctrines that compose the Christian faith. He's talking, in short, about the gospel of Christ, the things that we believe. Look at chapter 15. Go back to chapter 15, verse one. Now, brothers, he says, I want to remind you of the gospel I preach to you which you received, next line is important, and on which you have taken your stand. 
By this gospel you are saved if you hold firmly to the word I preach to you. He's talking about the gospel of Jesus Christ. This is faith in the gospel. And so the Christian faith, the body of truth, the doctrines we believe, and the gospel are essentially the same thing. And since West Highland began almost 51 years ago now, this church has stood for the faith. You have stood firm for the faith. About 10 or 11 years ago, we rewrote the doctrinal statement of our church, a statement that we could confess, and we, 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 we made it much more robust than the previous statement of faith which we had. And the reason why this was passed by the church and accepted by the church was because you saw the need for us to have a robust confession of the things that we believe. Paul says, be on your guard, be watchful. Now, what does that imply? It implies there's some danger here. Danger that is going to come by stealth. When he says be watchful, it's as though he's saying to you and I that we need to be like sentries in an army. That when the, when the army is asleep at night, the guardmen, the, sen- the sentries are posted at various places. Their ears listening carefully to what could be the sound of an invading army coming. Looking for any signs that danger is on the horizon. The fate of a whole army can rest upon the men who have to stand guard at night. And what are they to watch for? What is Paul saying we should watch for? What are we to be on guard about? Well, the Bible warns us, of course, of Satan and his schemes, his plans and his evil plots. But Paul gives an interesting word to Timothy in 1 Timothy 4 where he says to this young man, he says, watch your life and your doctrine closely. Watch your life and your belief closely. When he talks about life there, he's talking about your lifestyle. He's talking about the habits that you build into the way you live. And the Apostle Paul links these two things, your life and your Doctrine are closely linked to each other, he says. And this is true. This is so very, very true. And it's a part of the danger that we face today. There is a worldliness right now that is encroaching itself upon the church. It has always been that way. We've always had our struggle with the world. But the world now is, has morphed in a, in a different kind of way. It's touching to the very core of our being as human beings. And this worldliness is encroaching itself on the church, causing us to dull our, sense, our senses. And if our senses get dulled, then over time our hearts will get hardened. And by this constant propaganda, this rhetoric, this repetition that comes from the world, over time many believers are gradually beginning to tolerate the things that the Bible says that it is against. Watch your life and doctrine closely. Brothers and sisters in Christ, when we begin to compromise morally, that will lead to compromise doctrinally. Doctrinal drift is indicative 
of moral drift. Because when you have drifted morally, you somehow have to adjust your doctrine to account for your new morality. Two weeks ago, we, the pastors, we were on the um, pastor's retreat at Muskoka Bible Conference, and um, one of our speakers was Rick Baker. Rick Baker is the pastor of Calvary Baptist Church in Oshawa, and he said a number of interesting things in the message that he brought to us. He talked about the way worldliness affects the way that we see doctrine. He said people are adjusting the word of God to accommodate the culture. He said some Christians and churches love the culture more than they love Christ. He said, and the goal behind all of this is how can we make a kinder, gentler God? Now, I know I have mentioned this a number of times in this series, and perhaps some of you are disturbed that I, that I have. You need to understand, I don't like to talk about this topic, but I do talk about it because it is the cultural moment in which we are living today. The church has always had its struggles and battles with the world. There have always been ideologies and isms that have put pressure on the church and tried to force the church to compromise the truth as it is in Jesus Christ. But this particular, the particular isms of our age that we are facing now is where the battle is being fought today. And the fight for the authority of the Bible is taking place in the arena of sexuality and gender in our culture today. Paul says in 1 Timothy 3 that the church is the pillar and the foundation of the truth. Therefore, the church must stand firm on the faith, on the truth. When he says stand firm, the word he uses here is like driving a stake into the ground, establishing a pillar that is strong and secure. Stand firm, he says, in the faith because a changed gospel is no gospel at all. The gospel is the power of God for the salvation of everyone who believes. Our gospel, the gospel of Jesus Christ, has the power to change people. You and I believe in a gospel that can change people even at the level of desire. And so we must heed Jesus' words in the Sermon on the Mount when he concluded that great sermon by saying, therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine and puts them into practice is like a man who has built his house on a rock. The rains come down, the streams rose, the winds blew and beat against that house, yet it did not fall because it had its foundation on the rock. Stand firm in the faith. Now notice the next two admonitions that are given in verse 13. And these are also coupled with each other. 
He says, be men of courage, be strong. Now, there are different translations, English translations, of what I just read. And most of you, if you have a newer copy of the New International Version, you have essentially a gender-neutral Bible. And that gender-neutral Bible gets rid of the word men or man and just simply says, be courageous. There's nothing wrong with that, what it's saying, but it removes the word men. If you have an ESV version of the Bible, the English Standard Version, it says, act like men. Act like men. Now, I have an older version of the New International Version, which is the best of all. That's why I use it all the time. <laughs> and it specifically says, be men of courage. Now, why would some translations remove the word men and other translations keep the word men? Now, there's not a big conspiracy theory here, okay, so relax. But the Greek word for human being is anthropos, anthropos. So when you want to speak in a gender-neutral way of humanity, you use the word in Greek, anthropos. We would say humankind, mankind. Our prime minister would say personkind. <laughs> but the Greek word for a male human being is the word andros. And that's the word that is used here in the original Greek. Hence, act like men, be men of courage. Now let me try to illustrate what Paul is saying here. Some of you have heard of Polycarp. Polycarp was the bishop of Smyrna. He was the next generation of church leader after the apostles. He was actually discipled by the apostle John who wrote for us the Gospel of John, the three letters of John, and the book of Rev Revelation. Polycarp would have been a well-discipled man. Imagine having the Apostle John as your personal teacher. When Polycarp was 86 years of age, he was seized and arrested and put on trial because he refused to burn incense to the emperor of Rome and in the burning of incense to declare that Caesar is Lord. As he was being taken away to trial and then after his trial, we understand through the writings of the ancients at that time that Polycarp heard a voice, and the voice was this. The voice said, be strong, Polycarp, and play the man. Play the man. Play the man, act like men, be men of courage. Unpopular words today in our gender-attacked gender society in which we live, but the Bible says, be men of courage. Now, is that just a word to the men? Of course not. That is a word to all of us. And that is why some translations just simply say, be courageous because the translators are concerned that the women will not be involved in the command, and the command is to all believers. Let me explain further. Some have wondered, what does this commandment actually mean? Act like men. There are two, two possible answers. The first is, grow up. 
Act like a man. And actually, that is a theme in 1 Corinthians. Because you remember in chapter 13, when he writes about love, he says, when I was a, when I was a child, he says, I thought like a child. I, I reasoned like a child. But when I became a man, I put away childish things. And that is a call for us to grow up. In chapter 14, he basically says the thing, the same thing in the, in the, in the context of the gifts of the Spirit, speaking in tongues and prophesying. He, he says, in understanding, be men. That's 1 Corinthians chapter 14. Verse 20. So that is a theme through the Corinthian letter. And some say that's what Paul's saying here. He's saying, grow up. Act like a man. But I don't think that's the meaning here. Notice, be men of what? Courage. Courage. In other words, Paul is saying we are to act like men in the warrior sense of fighting battles. Now in Paul's day, it was men who went to war. It was men who were warriors. It was the men of a city who would pick up axes and swords and go out to meet an invading army in order to protect all that they owned and their families at home. So, think Braveheart. You have that picture in your mind? Think Braveheart. In other words, the battle was always hand-to-hand. It wasn't sitting with a rifle 300 or 400 meters away and shooting at someone. It was hand to hand. And if you got pushed to the ground and lost your footage, then you were in real trouble. You needed to maintain your feet. In other words, and here's the politically incorrect thing, manly strength was needed. Now this command is for everyone. That all of us are to man up, as it were and to be courageous warriors for Christ and the gospel. And we should not be alarmed by this, and ladies, you should not be offended by this in any way whatsoever, because there are other exhortations in the word of God that command all believers, men and women, to be mother-like in the way we treat each other, right? That's not just a command for women. That's a command for men too. But here we're commanded to be man-like, to be courageous warriors, to put on the armor of God. We are called to stand for Christ and his cause, and manly courage is needed. Now then he says, be strong. So both be men of courage and be strong, both address an issue. And the issue is the ever-present danger that exists of a hostile culture, of persecution, of hostility against the Christian faith. Go back to verse 9. Paul says, a great door for effective work is open to me, and there are many who oppose me. There are many adversaries. And so while opportunity for the gospel exists, opposition to the gospel is there at the same time. There's never just an open door of opportunity without opposition. Times have really changed in our nation. When I became a Christian 51 years 
ago, the big question that, that people had then that I always sought to address when I shared my faith with others, the big question was, is the Bible true? Is the gospel true? And so the early days of my ministry were always geared to, got to prove that it's true. But that has changed. In the last 20 to 30 years, the issue isn't, is the gospel or the Bible true? The issue has been, is the Bible good? Is the gospel good? And now, there has been a further shift. And the question is no longer, is it true or is it good? But is it safe? Is the gospel safe? Is the Bible safe? Is the church safe? That's the question being asked in our non-believing culture today. There has been a drift from indifference to hostility. And never before in Canadian history have we had a government that is so committed to enforcing an ideology upon its populace as we have today. We have a government at all levels, federal, provincial, and municipal, that speaks about diversity but demands conformity. And the latest comments of our prime minister, where he has basically despised parental rights and referred to to parental rights as the far right, are indicative of where we are at in this present cultural moment. We need to keep this in mind, and I say this not to be alarmist, and not in any way to to cause us to dig in into trenches to take our stand, but marginalized communities, ostracized groups are eventually the persecuted. Paul says, be men of courage, be strong, We are called here to endurance, to perseverance, to hardship, to face the adversity that is coming, and keeping this in mind at all times, that this particular cultural moment in which we live is actually creating right now a wide door for effective service. This is not the time to retreat to our trenches. This is the time to get out of our trenches and to move forward in battle as warriors for Jesus Christ. Not to go out to just simply speak negatively of the powers that be, but to confront the philosophies and isms of this age with the truth, the liberating truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Dwayne Klein, who's sitting down here, and I were in Calgary two weeks back, or three weeks back now, and we were there for the Gospel Coalition Council meetings. And I know, Dwayne, you were encouraged, and I was too, to hear the, the, the many stories from our pastors who serve on our council from coast to coast, telling of young men who are coming to faith in Christ and how they're sensing a stirring of young men who are starting to respond to the, go- the gospel. Now, that's not that there aren't women coming to Christ either or older people as well, but, but this thing of young men who are turning their backs on the culture now and coming to faith in Christ. And our pastor's retreat last week, 
It was probably the first time where the young men who are pastors of our churches now outnumbered those of us who were over 45. An incredible thing to see young men stepping up, be men of courage, be warriors. But there will be opposition. And that opposition demands strength. And so we read here, be strong. Now, it's an interesting word that Paul uses here. Because when he says be strong, the verb is actually passive, which means it's not so much be strong as it is receive strength. Receive strength or be strengthened. Be strong sort of means that you can generate this within yourself. But be strengthened means that this is a command for you to receive strength. And it implies that the strength is from God. I don't know about you, but daily life is just enough to drain us, isn't it? Living in this world, being constantly attacked by the world, the flesh, and the devil, it it saps our strength over time. Life's sorrows and struggles, its afflictions and diseases, its disappointments and its pains. And then we add to that the cultural hostility to the church and to the gospel, the days are coming, the days are now here when we are going to need strength to wait upon the Lord to receive that strength, to go to our good shepherd who leads us beside still waters and causes us to lie down in green pastures and the one who restores our soul. A hymn that I have loved, which I don't think we have sung here in the 15 years that I've been, been here, but a beautiful, beautiful chorus that some of you might know is the, is the song, He Giveth More Grace. Do you know that? Anybody here know that song? I was just going to quote it to you, but I'm going to do the impossible and sing it now. <laughs> when we have exhausted our store of endurance... When our strength has failed, ere the day is half done. When we reach the end of our hoarded resources, our Father's full giving is only begun. His love has no limit. His grace has no measure. His power knows no boundary known unto men. For out of his infinite riches in Jesus, he giveth and giveth and giveth again. Prioritize the building of our community. Stand firm in the gospel. Be courageous like warriors. And finally, verse 14, make love comprehensive. Verse 14, do everything in love. This seems to be the capstone over all of these things. How do we build community motivated by the love of Christ, motivated by our love for one another? How do we stand firm in the faith if we don't love the faith and love God? How can we be courageous, be men of courage, if we're not motivated by love for the gospel and love for those who need the gospel. 
It is because of love that we build. It is because of love that we stand. It is because of love that we are courageous because our love for the truth and the glory of God will compel us to fight and to be strong. And this is the theme, one of the themes in 1 Corinthians. In chapters 8 and 9, he essentially rebukes those who were strong in the faith because they weren't showing love to those who were weak in the faith. In chapter 11, he rebukes the rich because they're not acting in love towards those who were poor. And in chapter 12 through 14, he instructs those who were gifted in a verbal way, who did not speak in love, who did not use their their gifts of communication in love, but rather for self-display. He calls upon them to build up the church, in other words, to live in love And here we have one more reminder from the Apostle Paul strategically placed at the end of his letter to remind us of the great truth that we read about a few weeks ago, that love is patient, love is kind, it does not envy, it does not boast, it's not proud, it's not rude, it's not self-seeking, it's not easily angered, it keeps no record of wrongs, love does not delight in evil but rejoices in the truth, it always protects, always trusts, always hopes, always perseveres. Love never fails. And these three remain faith, hope, and love. And the greatest of these, of course, is love. So brothers and sisters in Christ, take these verses in 1 Corinthians 13 on love and pray them into your souls. Pray these verses of love into your marriages. Pray them into the life of our church. Pray these verses into our worship, into our community groups, into all of our relationships. Paul's great hymn of love was rewritten precisely for the church to show us how to love one another. So make love comprehensive. And now as a final takeaway point, I want you to notice Paul's final greetings in ver- beginning at verse 19. The churches in the province of Asia send you greetings. Aquila and Priscilla greet you warmly in the Lord, and so does the church that meets at their house. All the brothers here send you greetings. Greet one another with a holy kiss. Verse 21. I, Paul, write this greeting in my own hand. Something happens right at this point in time. The Apostle Paul takes the pen from his amuensis, the man he was dictating his letter to. He takes the pen from his hand, and Paul picks up the pen himself. And in his final words, he writes these greetings. In other words, the Apostle Paul no longer dictated at this point, but he wanted to add his own personal touch to what he had to say in his final words. And if you will allow me to do something similar today. If I may share with you now my own personal concluding exhortation. In January 2008, 15 and a half years ago, on my first Sunday at West Highland as your pastor, I spoke to you from Colossians 1 verses 24 through 29. And in that brief passage, Paul summarized his ministry by saying these words. 
I have become its servant, meaning I have become the servant of the church by the commission God gave me to present to you the word of God in its fullness. We proclaim him, that is we proclaim Christ, admonishing and teaching everyone with all wisdom so that we may present everyone perfect in Christ. To this end I labor, struggling with all his energy, so, which so powerfully works in me. Now from those verses, I said to you that I wanted my ministry here at West Highland to be marked by two things, the two things that Paul mentioned. To make the word of God fully known and to make the people of God fully mature. Now it wasn't long before these two points in a message became a motto that resonated with many and was shared by many as the mission of our church. And so for 15 years, through regular Sunday preaching, through the teaching ministry of track and the focus on small group ministry, I have labored, as have others, to make the word of God fully known and the people of God fully mature. Now much has happened in these 15 years. There have been many changes at West Highland. There have been many challenges and disappointments. There have been many accomplishments and triumphs. We went through a major building project. God enlarged our church staff and ministry team. And many have come to Christ and been baptized. But in all that has happened and in all that we have done by his help, we have sought to make two things a priority. To make the word of God fully known and the people of God fully mature. I remember in the mid-1980s, hearing when I was a missionary in Manila, my favorite author, the late, late Dr. John Stott, say this, that there is no greater joy for a pastor than to teach and preach God's word and over time see a congregation grow into maturity in Christ. And this has been my joy with you. It's not coincidental that my ministry among you began with the focus on expounding the scriptures to bring us to maturity and that it ends with a series from 1 Corinthians, a letter written to a church that was floundering because of its immaturity. All through this letter, we have seen that Paul was exhorting them to put aside the spiritually childish attitudes and actions that hinder spiritual growth and push on by standing firm in the faith, walking in love, and developing the mind of Christ. And these four core values that he mentions in chapter 16, building our community, standing firm in the gospel is the core of our confession, being courageous like warriors in the face of opposition, and making love comprehensive in all that we do are not only the marks of maturity, they are also admonitions to maturity. Paul ended some of his letters with the words, and finally, brothers, today in this last message to you as your lead pastor, I do the same. And finally, brothers 
and sisters in Christ. Being marked by these signs of maturity, I admonish you in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ this last time to set before you always the priority of building this church community by the sharing of your resources and your lives. In this age when the pressures to compromise the gospel message, to make it accommodate the new isms of our eroding culture, I admonish you to stand firm in the faith by proclaiming and protecting as your core confession the gospel of Jesus Christ, which is the power of God for salvation of everyone who believes. As the rising clouds of coming dark days loom even heavier on the horizon, I urge you to drive down deep the stake of truth and to be courageous warriors who do not rely on the carnal weapons of this world, but on those which have divine power to demolish strongholds. Endure hardship as good soldiers of Jesus Christ. Make love comprehensive in all that you do so that God will be glorified, the church will be edified, and the world will be evangelized because by your love for one another, the world will know that you are Christ's disciples. Brothers and sisters, to a church that is marked by these traits and pursues these traits, God will open wide doors of opportunity. My prayer is that to your commitment to obey these admonitions, God the Holy Spirit will add his empowering so that you will be equipped to seize every opportunity to reach more and more people with the life-transforming gospel of Jesus Christ. Amen. Would you please stand? So, Father, we, we bow um, toward the conclusion of our worship of you this morning with, with humbled hearts, expressing to you our need, our desire, to live like the Word of God tells us to live, encourages us to live, instructs us to live. But we need your help. And so we come to you, the one who gives and gives and gives his incredible grace, knowing that if we ask, we will receive. If we knock, the door will be open to us. If we seek, we will find. We thank you so much for your goodness to us. We thank you so much for the way in which your word challenges us at the core of our beings. We thank you for 1 Corinthians and all of the instruction in it to guide us to become the church that you want us to be. Lord, you have used us and blessed us and we have grown, but we continue to look to you for further growth, that we might become fully mature in Jesus Christ. By your spirit, Lord, we pray, you will work in us to that end. Amen. We conclude our worship with Paul's words in the last two verses of 1 Corinthians 16. The grace of the Lord Jesus be with you. 
My love to all of you in Christ Jesus. Amen.